Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. My name is Chris Rawl. If you have a strong, deep, abiding connection to the world of sports, I would like to speak with you. I'd actually like to interview you for purposes of this show. If you are one of those people, or if you know one of those people who has a really just strong emotional connection to anything within this realm, uh, please reach out and contact me. My email address is chris at ceo.com, or you can DM me on Twitter at Chris Rawl. Either one of those will come to me. An additional reminder, please sign up for my newsletter. You can go to chrisrawl.com and go to the subscribe button, hit it, bam, voila, you're good to go. Okay, let's get to the meat of today's show because I want to talk about my feelings that are quite conflicted and ultimately kind of sad about the present state of the NBA. We seek out what resonates with each of us and we root accordingly. This is the beauty of watching sports. Those are the words of Kevin Van Valkenburg. I ended last show with them and I am using them as a springboard to start today's show because they are really good and they align closely with how I think and how I watch sports. And I know that a lot of the things that I love or don't love, a lot of other fans feel very differently. You know, it's a, it's a great place to have ton of differing viewpoints, but maybe not get as insane or crazy as other places within the world, whether that's politics or something else where you just shout and shout and nobody wants to know anything. I think sports is a really good forum to explore differing viewpoints in a more productive and hopefully enlightening manner to anybody who's involved. And I want to try and do that today because I want to work through some of my own thoughts on the NBA and basketball in general. Uh, and you know, I also hopefully would like to hear from any of you that maybe feel differently or similarly, because I think the NBA is kind of at an interesting point in my mind. So if you hear things or want to speak about things that pertain to today's show, uh, again, you can reach out and contact me and I'm all ears. Chris at CEO.com for my email or just tweet at me or DM me on Twitter at Chris Rawl. So today I'm going to parse through my feelings on the NBA and why it doesn't resonate with me like it once did. That resonation is really key. Uh, it's something that you can't lie about to yourself. You know, you just feel a certain way. And sometimes you're feeling it for a long period of time and then suddenly this feeling is gone and you're going, well, wait, what happened? That's the present state of me and the MBA. Because for all of my life, I've been sitting and watching it and I go, this is fun, this is great. I love this even outside of gambling or any of the things that I get tied up with in sports, I can just sit down and watch an NBA game with nothing on the line by myself. And I've always been able to enjoy that. And that's been very different over the last, you know, couple of years and especially this last season, which has got me thinking about just, okay, well, what is, what has changed? What is changing? And how do I rectify that? I would like to get this thing back in my life that once resonated with me that now doesn't resonate as much. So people love the NBA currently, I mean, it's a very popular league. It's global. There's a gazillion fans all across the face of planet Earth. And people love this current version of the NBA for a lot of different reasons. You know, a lot of it doesn't even have to do with basketball itself. There's the social media drama. People lap that up. There's just off-court drama in general. This player's saying bad things about this player and this and this. Just kind of the reality TV show aspect that a lot of people crave. There's the outrageous personalities. What did Kyrie say? Is he burning sage over in the locker room now. What's James Harden doing out on the night on the town? There's all of these things that go into the sport of the NBA that has attracted a lot of people to it that I don't think would necessarily have been interested if it was just boring basketball, 
These are basketball machines. All they do is play basketball, watch them play, and then it's done. Now, I am the person who wants the other side because, you know, I'm just a person who likes the sport for itself. You know, when we go back to Van Valkenburg's words and say, okay, what resonates with each? For me, I'm just a strict, I like the artistry of this. Who is creating it, how that is happening, you know, I don't get a lot into that. I don't go and follow these people on Twitter and Instagram and follow their every move and who are they dating, this or that. I just like to watch LeBron play basketball. Pretty simple, right? Now, as I think about the NBA as it is currently constructed, I go, okay, well, I'm, I'm struggling to come up with positive reasons that the current version of this sport is enjoyable for me to watch, which again is really weird because I've never had this feeling before. But for whatever reason, hopefully I can get to the bottom of it as the show goes on. It just isn't resonating. You know, I'm not the person who's into social media or the off-court stuff or personalities. What matters to me, the more that I ponder on this NBA question, what matters to me is competition. You know, I wrote about that in this week's newsletter, which I'm actually going to read a little bit later because I think it's just uh, a good thing to get my brain juices flowing, which sounds disgusting, but... <laughs> too late I already said it <laughs> but as i've thought about this really over the course of this week and we're in the off season there's nothing going on we got a month and change till football and i'm thinking about just this sport that i man i really used to be into it and now i'm not and what is different and i keep coming back to this question of competition because i think back let's say you know 15ish years or so ago when the basketball was grubby as hell you know if you if you watch basketball in the mid 2000s uh, it was so broke down from a playability standpoint. I'm talking 75 to 71 games. You go back to like the 2005 playoffs and you watch the Eastern Conference Finals. It was Pistons against Pacers. And, and those games were just played in the 70s. It was every possession was a grind. Even the NBA Finals, which were the Pistons against the Spurs that year. The Spurs end up coming out in seven games against the defending champion Pistons who would beat the Lakers the year prior. It was just like not... Uh, in terms of how and what we crave about basketball in present day, it was none of those things. It was not free-flowing. There was not space. It was trying to hack and carve out two points every so often. And if you got to 80, you would win. Now, what's weird looking back on that is that basketball still resonated with me, as ugly as it may be. And the thing I keep thinking about is, well, it's because I understood the compete level of everybody who's involved. Yes, it was atrocious, nearly unwatchable basketball, but I watched it and I enjoyed it and it resonated with me because I understood everybody was competing for every inch of hardwood, right? I'm watching Tayshaun Prince and Ben Wallace and Chauncey Billups and Ron Artest and Reggie Miller and all of these people. I go, okay, I understand that everybody is trying here really hard to win this basketball game. And maybe I'd like a few more points and maybe, yeah, you guys could not just have five people packed into the paint trying to score. That's not really great concept for uh, an offense, but whatever. People are here and they're competing and that is something I really, really crave as a fan. And the more that I think about that, like I, I go, well, this is, it's the same reason why I can get into any grubby ass football game or hockey game. Because those are the two sports, college football, NFL, NHL, all three of those, actually. I'll watch anything that pertains to them because you cannot play those sports and refuse to compete because you will get physically annihilated. That's just the nature of those sports. There's a lot of violence that is intrinsic to how both of those games are played. 
And you can't really go and fake your way through a game in a way that basketball lends itself to. You want to go jog between the three-point lines for a while? Go ahead. Who cares? You want to take a couple games off because your knee's sore or you just want to go on vacation and clear your mind? Go ahead. Who cares? It's basketball. It doesn't matter. Got 82-game season. Doesn't really matter. Get in the playoffs. We'll see what happens. There's a lot of that that is really, really, really become prevalent within the, the current constructs of the NBA. And when I watch the NBA and then compare it across those other two, I go, there's a reason that I can watch a Tuesday night Bowling Green Ball State game. And it resonates with me more than watching the Lakers play against the Clippers in the regular season because I understand the level of compete from that first match. There's a reason I can watch the Islanders play the Rangers in January and it resonates more. There's a reason I can watch the Jacksonville Jaguars play the Atlanta Falcons on a Thursday night. I love Thursday night NFL games because they're grubby as hell and the quality of football is so poor and broke down and that's part of the charm. But ultimately, I understand everybody is competing on the football field and that's a big draw for me. So going back to resonation and just, hey, I need to have something that's pulling me in that keeps me entertained for longer than just these brief blips, you know, just this 10 second clip I could watch on Twitter if I so want, which is, in my mind is what the NBA has really become uh, concentrated on. Just highlight after highlight. Okay, cool. There you go. You got a feeling the NBA sweet. You're an NBA fan. And me, the person who wants to watch the 48 minutes and go, no, I like the ebbs and flows of a basketball game and I want to see them. But now I'm watching a sport where stars are sitting at all the time. I can't really tell if anybody's trying in, on most nights. And it's just kind of a blah product compared to other sports that I watch. So now I'm watching the NBA and I go, yeah, I feel like I've lost that feeling a little bit. It's not resonating like it used to. So I mentioned I wrote a newsletter this week because I've been thinking about it. And the reason I've been thinking about just this NBA question is because of my hometown team, Utah Jazz. They're kind of at this precipice moment for their franchise, and it's tied in, in my mind, to the state of basketball in general. So I actually want to read this. I know some of you have probably already read it, but I think it will serve you to even listen to it again as kind of a middle point of today's discussion as I segue into the Jazz, but also the NBA and just kind of the problems that I feel like are arising that maybe you, the listener, feel differently about. And again, if you do, reach out. I want to hear about this. So here's my newsletter. Again, if you haven't subscribed, go and do it. Just go to chrisrawl.com. You can subscribe. It's freaking easy. And this is from Wednesday's newsletter. In two years, the Utah Jazz have jumped from the league's best record into teardown mode. Once Donovan Mitchell is traded, they will officially enter the strangely romanticized sphere of tanking teams, abiding by the current basketball belief that if you aren't a championship contender, you must burn everything and begin anew. I'm conflicted because I like basketball and I like competition. Teams like Philadelphia and Oklahoma City have unabashedly tanked their way up the draft board, landing the most valuable commodities in sports, talented, high upside rookies on cheap contracts via the process. Both teams have taken advantage of the paradox created and allowed by the NBA. They want teams to be competitive night in, night out, but the highest likelihood of obtaining star-level talent comes from tanking and drafting high. As we have seen over the last decade, it is impossible for both of these concepts to exist simultaneously. Maybe it's because I'm getting older and naturally must turn into the old man shaking his fist at the sky. Maybe it's because my favorite sport, college football, is being irrevocably altered by a lack of focused direction. But as tanking has been prioritized and celebrated within the NBA, my interest has started to wane. 
I've discovered the thing I truly want as a fan. Teams who are continually willing to compete night in, night out. If the people who are involved with the game itself don't care, how can I? Which leads to my conflict with the Jazz, the lone professional team in my home state. The Gobert-Mitchell Corps had reached its ceiling. A good team, but not a great team. Nobody believed Utah, without sweeping roster changes, was capable of winning a championship. And everybody believes, including me, that Utah's current path, bringing in noted demolition expert Danny Ainge to wrap TNT around the foundation and push the plunger, is its best chance to obtain a star. But even as my brain comprehends the statistical correctness of the path, my heart mourns the loss of competitive basketball and seeds at the league that enables it. Many fans will be energized by Utah accumulating near-infinite draft assets and praying one or two of them hits. Maybe one of them will. Maybe this will mark a turning point for Utah's franchise, akin to Tim Duncan being drafted number one by the Spurs and creating magic in San Antonio. Or maybe it will just result in a decade-long story arc like the Sixers are living. Years of tanking used to construct a roster that is really good, but probably not championship quality. Sound familiar? So that's been on my mind. It actually, it still is on my mind because Don Mitchell has not yet been traded. It's probably the number one news item within the NBA right now as the Kevin Durant trade stuff seems like it's being pushed to the back burner and he, it seems more likely he's going to be playing for the Nets this year than not. We know Mitchell is up for sale. as uh, a really good high-level scorer who doesn't do a lot else. And we know the New York Knicks are just lusting after somebody who in their minds is a star in the minds of most people i wouldn't say is necessarily a star probably depends on how you quantify what a star actually is but mitchell in trade talks mitchell in trade talks mitchell in trade talks utah jazz tearing down utah jazz tearing down utah jazz preparing to tank which okay the nba let's let's start there maybe before we get a little bit more granular with the utah jazz and let's talk about that term tanking in the nba and I'm, I'm flabbergasted by the prevalence of it. I'm flabbergasted that it is such a widely accepted and celebrated strategy, which depressingly, when I'm being honest, it, it should be. That's an NBA issue. It's the way the league is set up. Most of these small market teams, like the Jazz, you are not going to go and get a star in free agency. You just aren't. Many times, even if you get somebody who is good and you draft them and develop them, they will leave, as we saw with Gordon Hayward. As we're going to see with this Mitchell trade, they traded Gobert, but I think Gobert wanted to be here, but you get the point. It's just really hard to retain even all-star level talent, much less true superstar level talent, if you're a small market team, especially in present day. Very different from the past when Stockton Malone were willing to play here for 20 years, when David Robinson stayed with the Spurs and just go down the list of all these stars that stayed with teams that you normally would not see them stay with if it were 2022. Makes it kind of depressing. When you're looking at the landscape of the NBA and you go, okay, let's say you tank and get a lot of good people. Let's say you're the Oklahoma City Thunder 10 years ago and you got Durant and Harden and Westbrook. And then a couple of years later, you didn't have any of them and you're going, what just happened? <laughs> now, the tanking issue is it rankles me in ways I can't fully describe. It makes me very, very, very angry that it is just such a foundational piece of building a franchise and that the NBA continues to just say, yeah, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Starting with the, the basic concept of why are teams rewarded for losing? Why in the hell is that a thing? I don't get it. It will never make sense to me. 
In what other industry would you be rewarded for being super bad at your job? It is the most bizarre thing that still is just widely accepted across the sporting spectrum. Now, where I think it's a little bit different if I compare the NBA to the NHL or the NFL is those are the two most competitive leagues. There's a constant churn, top and bottom. Fans always have reason to believe a turnaround is imminent within the NHL and the NFL. And if you say, what is the common denominator there? You go, well, there's a hard salary cap in both those leagues. Pretty easy to identify how these leagues remain as competitive as they are. Even though they have a similar draft structure of, okay, worst teams, you're going to pick higher up. The NFL does not even have a lottery. It's just straight across the board. Now, it's a little bit different because NFL players are always playing for their contracts, no matter what, at all times. So individual players themselves can never afford to, let's just take a couple games off because we're trying to tank as an organization. If NFL players are on the field, they're playing. They're playing hard, and you're going to see a football product that maybe it's not great football, but you will understand the level of compete. The NBA, there's a lot. I mean, you can identify the start of every season. Been this way for years of just, okay, let's cross off. Let's cross off these eight teams. We know they're not trying. We know they all want to tank for whatever the draft prospect is this year. They all have hopes and dreams of getting the number one pick, getting a star, putting them in the system a couple years down the road. Good to go. Great. Here we go. Every year, you can cross them off right at the start. The season has not even begun. And the NBA is, you know, okay, that's fine. Great. Here we go. Oh, we want to change the, the draft lottery odds a little bit because we, we do care about tanking because a lot of people talk about it, but we don't care about it enough to really do anything about it. We'll tweak, okay, if first place used to have a 25% chance, let's just make it, okay, the top three have the same percentage odds. That, that's a good start, right? Or, okay, now... Maybe some people look at it and say, okay, that's a step in the right direction. I look at it and I go, "Mm, I'm very convinced of this. If the NBA wanted to change, they would change. I keep coming back to that. I I come back to that with my nitpicks about anything. You know, change is a very integral piece of living a life. And every single day you can come across people. And sometimes I do it in my own life of just, I want this to be different. You know, I want to lose weight. I want to get in shape. I want to get a girlfriend. I want to do this. And I go, if you want to change, you'll change. If you don't want to change, then you won't change. <laughs> it's pretty simple. A lot of these things require a lot of work. It's really hard sometimes. Uh, but if you truly are invested in creating meaningful change, you will go and do that. That is on you. It's the same concept with the NBA. Will it be easy? Is it just as simple as snapping your fingers and suddenly you have this competitive churn that's similar to the NFL and the NHL? No, it would not be that simple. You would have to alter really foundational pieces that have been a part of your league for a long time. But there's also avenues that you could get to, in my opinion, that would create a significantly better and more competitive product. If you wanted to change, you would change. I want to read you something. It's just a quick line. It's from Kevin Clark of The Ringer. He was writing about college football, but it pertains greatly to what I'm discussing with the NBA today. This is what he said. The best thing you can hope for when you are the captive audience of a sport is that the people making decisions like the sport too that they understand why people watch it in the first place, end quote. That's a college football issue times 3 million. But I also think it's an NBA issue. I really do. And what might be kind of depressing to somebody like me as I voice my opinions and what I desire as a fan is there might be a lot more fans that desire the exact opposite of me. And the NBA might be sitting there identifying, you know what? We are listening to our fans. We are listening to our captive audience. We do understand. We understand that people like social media drama and off-court stuff and that the basketball product itself, yeah, we'll always be trying to tweak and, and do this or that, but what is actually driving interest in revenue for us 
is a lot of these other things. It's we can cut up stuff and throw a couple dunks on social media from John Morant. We're good to go. We don't have to worry as much about this 48 minute Grizzlies Timberwolves game being played on ESPN. And maybe that's true. If it is, that's depressing as hell for me. But it, if it's great for the majority, then the NBA is going to continue to do that is my guess. So now be, let's get a little more granular. Let's go back to the Utah Jazz. Because I mentioned the Jazz is a small market team. They're, they're a small fish in a big pond. You know, there's a reason Danny Ainge was brought here. It was not to just hang out and be Ryan Smith's friend. Although maybe there's a part of that that's that. But when Danny Ainge comes to your organization, you know why. He's the noted takedown artist. He created what almost won a championship this year in Boston. Ripping it down to its studs, giving them all these assets that ended up turning into, most notably, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. Two high draft picks. Two number three overall picks that, again, was two games away from winning an NBA championship this year. So now Utah, I think, is envisioning what they hope is a similar path. You know, we had a competitive team two years ago, best record. Last year, still a playoff team, really disappointing, but okay. Seemed like something was off chemistry-wise. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but we've had enough. I think a lot of people got to that point. I got to the point where I go, this team can't win a championship as it's currently constructed. I'm 100% confident in that. But my, my feelings on the matter were kind of conflicted. I jumped back and forth of, you know, maybe I'd keep, I like to keep Gobert because I like Gobert's competitor. That was, that's probably my main take, honestly. Had nothing to do with, I think you can build a championship team around him. I don't think you can do that, but I don't think you can build a championship team around either one of those people. And other days I'm going, yeah, Mitchell's young. He's proven playoff score. That's super valuable. Maybe get a bunch of wing defenders around him. Uh, I don't know, you know. And then I ultimately arrived at the destination in my mind of, you know what? There are all these things that could or would, blah, blah, blah. If you want to win a championship, we know what the best strategy is. It's to obliterate everything and to bring in Danny Ainge and to trade Rudy Gobert for a draft asset haul that I couldn't even fathom. I thought that ESPN was lying to me when I first saw it. And now we know Mitchell's on the market and I'm sure all Jazz fans are sitting there going, if we can get that for Gobert, can't we get even more for Mitchell from the New York Knicks? Which if you're getting unprotected picks from the Knicks, I mean, (laughs) that's just, that's a spin on the roulette wheel that is more calculated than a normal spin on the roulette wheel based upon the New York Knicks franchise history over my lifetime. Is you get an unprotected pick from them and it could be pretty, pretty tasty in no time, regardless of who is on the roster. They just have not shown they can be a competent franchise. So it's, the Jazz are headed that way. You know, they're going to be tanking. There's no way around it. Whether they trade Mitchell right now or whether they just wait and wait out the Knicks and say, we have him under contract for three years. We'll trade him to you at the start of the season, the trade deadline. We'll wait you out. Danny Ainge is the master at just going, look, you are the one who is desperate. We are not. And we will not settle for anything less than what we think is a king's ransom for player X. So that's where I'm going, okay, I understand the strategy. I actually probably agree with the strategy. But at the same time, I'm going, am I energized by this or am I depressed by this? There's a tiny little sliver of me going, if it turns into Tim Duncan, oh yeah, I'll be great. Four years down the road, I'll be ecstatic. But there's a part of me that's depressed because I'm going, it's just going to be non-competitive basketball. And more importantly, there are a bunch of teams continually doing this within this league. That's incredibly problematic in my opinion. So if you're energized, yeah, it sounds awesome. We could get the number one pick. Okay, let's get 
Wembenyana, let's get the number one new seven foot three or whatever he is, French guy out here, and that's going to be our new franchise pillar. Sounds awesome. If it crystallizes in the best possible way, the problem is statistics are very, very, very not in your favor there. And so if you think of the years ahead with no guarantees whatsoever that any of these things amount to anything, it becomes kind of intense to just go, what is resonating with me if I'm watching jazz games over the next few years? Or any of these tank teams, if I'm watching Rockets games, just all the, you know, pick one of your eight bad teams at the bottom. What is resonating with me as a fan? Why am I watching that happen? So there's another issue that's embedded within that. And it's one that's kind of complicated and I flip-flop on it, you know? I don't think I have my mind 100% made up on it and maybe I just can't because I understand both sides, but it's a small market team issue, which the Jazz have to go through, which fans of small market teams have to go through. Just like, you know what? My team is already behind the eight ball when I like a team that is a small market team in this league. That already is dog shit. That sucks. Now, if you're a small market team and you're weighing one of the two better options, you go, okay, we're always going to have to decide if, if we get to a point of being reasonably competitive as the Jazz had gotten to under the Mitchell Gobert Corps every year that they were together, playoff team every year. Is that enough or is a home run swing justified because we are not a championship contender? That's always the, the question. And it takes a lot of years to build up to like that level of reasonably good which makes the question more complex because you're going, at least I know we're going to be good for the next few years. We're going to make the playoffs and we're probably going to have some embarrassing loss, whether it's the Mavericks with no Luka or the Clippers with no Kawhi. But you know what? We're not a championship team. We just aren't. But we're a good team. And we play reasonably entertaining basketball when, you know, the chemistry's good and we'll win 50 plus games and our fans will get playoff games. Um, is it really the worst thing in the world if your team plays hard and competes and enjoys playing with one another, yet always comes up short of a championship? That's a small market question. Conventional wisdom in that sense, I think, would always say yes. Yes, that is bad because you play to win the game. Herm Edwards, cue up the clip, play to win the game. And if you're not winning the game at the highest level, then you need to look at yourself. And if you're being honest, you go, we know we can't win a championship with this core. So let's trade everybody and start anew. Let's, you know, Get a bunch of high draft picks. Let's try and get that value, the most valuable commodity. But even in the midst of that, and yes, uh, it's depressing as hell if you just think my team will never win a championship and I'll just sit here and go, okay, cool. If you're a six seed and get bounced in the first round every year, that's good enough for me. I get that that's kind of depressing. But at the same time, I do respect something about teams that are good over a, an extended period of time, even if they aren't championship caliber and they keep that together and say, you know what? We're fine with this and the fans like this and we get extra basketball games and they try and they give a shit and they're not going to be as good as a LeBron led team or a Steph Curry led team, but so be it. A team like that that comes to mind is the grit and grind Grizzlies. The Zach Randolph, Marcus All, Mike Conley, Tony Allen. Teams that were really fun. They played kind of grubby ass basketball, if I'm being honest. I greatly enjoyed watching them. I liked that they kept the team together. I never once thought this team was going to win a championship. You know, the closest they ever came was probably they were up 2-1 in the 2015 Western Conference Finals 
against Golden State, the first year that Golden State won the championship, even when they were at that point, I thought there was literally a 0% chance they could win a championship. But I think that city loved that team. I think if you pulled any of their fans, they go, no, 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 we wouldn't have changed that for anything. You could have gone back and said, we traded all these, we shipped everybody off for draft assets, draft assets, draft assets. And then we had a 5% chance landing so-and-so and and a 7% chance landing so-and-so. And maybe, maybe, maybe there's a tiny percentage point chance that we accumulated a championship level team. I don't think they would take that. Now, their issue is different because they obviously got John Morant and now they're reaping the benefits of, hey, we do have a star and hey, we do have a bunch of young players that we can throw around him. And they're trying to determine, is this a centerpiece of a championship team, John Morant? I probably would say yes. We don't know yet. Small guard, that's always kind of an issue. They also have a lot of depth pieces around him that are young that they could trade if they want. They could just let grow together. They're at a really interesting point of their franchise, which if you're going back to the, we should tear everything down and get the star and get a bunch of draft assets, the current Grizzlies, strangely enough, are kind of what I think the, the best vision of that can be, which is this team is young. They're fun as hell. They have room to grow. They have an electric star who's really fun to watch play basketball. And would the Utah Jazz take that in a heartbeat? Absolutely. Every tanking team would take that in a heartbeat. If you said in three years time, you can have what the Grizzlies currently have. Every tanking team would sign up for that in a heartbeat. And me as a fan, I would sign up for that in a heartbeat. But that brings back to the NBA, the current state of it. And the seemingly unwillingness to change in my eyes. Now, again, I will stress this and readily admit that my desires might be different from a lot of basketball fans. But I seek what resonates with me just like you are going to seek what resonates with you. Maybe this stuff has turned you off. Maybe it's made you more interested. Maybe you're a jazz fan. You're going, I'm way fired up for the next couple of years because I knew that Mitchell and Gobert were not going to win a championship. And now maybe possibly a couple of years, handful of years, decade down the road, the jazz could be in position to do that. That'd be incredible. That'd be electric for all people involved. But with the NBA itself, okay, cool. Super popular. Uh, Off-court drama has brought in a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't be interested in the sport. Maybe that's an area that they continue to lean into. Uh, With with that in mind, with the NBA being such a global product that it is, a successful one, I'm sure that they could listen to this whole show, listen to people who complain in similar veins to me and go, why would we change? Look at how much money we're making. Look at how successful we've grown the game over the last 20 years. Turned it from okay, this is something successful into just, it's everywhere. It's all over earth. So (laughs) I've arrived at the place where it's kind of, okay, I'm just going to have to start coming to terms with this. It's just like college football for me. College football, I understand you will not be what you once were. The NBA, it's like, okay, I'm going to have to start understanding that if I want to watch basketball, it's going to be this diluted version of it you know there's a difference there's a big difference between college football and basketball because football is always going to revolve around competing and i've said many times on many shows about college football yeah i don't like that it's headed where it's headed it's way shittier than it used to be in my opinion but whether it's super conferences whether it's whatever whether it's just nine million dogs fighting in the wilderness like the ncaa has always been i will always watch football being played 
at even a medium level, much less a high level, because there is competition ingrained in that sport. And I don't get that same feeling with basketball. I keep comparing it to the NFL and the NHL because I just think it's fair for me as I seek out what resonates the most with me. And I go, football and hockey, they're the two things. They've always resonated with me. They resonate with me now more than ever. And basketball seems like it's a country mile behind both of these. And if you're looking at bad teams and just reasons you would watch a team that is not, according to the record, competitive, I'd go, these sports, they bring out competition, regardless of who you are. You all know I'm a huge Avalanche fan. You all know because of that and listening to the show that five years ago, they were the worst record in hockey. And even during that season, was it depressing as hell? Yes, because the Avalanche were losing every night. Was I sitting there going, I hope they get somebody really good in the draft? Yes, I was. Did I want them to get the number one pick? Yes, I did. Did they fall to four and get miraculously Kel McCarr, the best defenseman in hockey? Yes, they did. But even within the framework of that season, I would watch and there were still things that I liked. First and foremost, this team was young. They were dog shit. They were so bad at hockey, but they competed because that's intrinsic to the nature of hockey. Same thing in the NFL. Go back to the last week of last year's regular season. Jacksonville Jaguars, they were the worst team in football. They ended up getting the number one pick overall. I believe they won two games, two and 15. They were so bad. Urban Meyer just, he pretty much put a bunch of gasoline on the entire franchise and lit a match and then went and ground himself on somebody at an Ohio bar. That was their, essentially their season. But even in that season, I enjoyed watching Jaguars football. I also watched them the final week of the regular season against the Indianapolis Colts, a team that needed to win in order to get into the playoffs. You could not have higher stakes for the opposing team. And what happened? Jaguars show up. They play well. They win the game. Colts are not in the playoffs. Jaguars have won their second game of the season just intrinsic to the nature of these sports. You don't get the same feeling that I do when I personally watch the NBA. And I watch tanking teams and I go, why would I watch this? This is not anywhere approximating basketball, period. And especially basketball where I can tell that all parties care. Watching a non-competitive team in the NBA, it's a very different experience from watching a non-competitive team in the NHL and the NFL. That's what really depresses me about this whole subject. And I feel like I really have to come to terms within my mind of, okay, you know, the Jazz are stripping down a reasonably competitive team to search for the Holy Grail because that is the nature of the NBA. And as it is currently constructed, it is in their best interest. I agree with all of those things. I actually think they should do it. At the same time, where the confliction comes from is, you know, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of the Jazz. I'm a fan of basketball. What is fun about watching this? For me, I don't, I, I can't identify something that I think is fun. And I'll extend that out to all of you. You know, whether you're an NBA fan or whether you are an actual Utah Jazz fan. And I'll end the show with a final question. Are you energized or demoralized by Utah's current path? Thank you for listening to the Chris Rawls Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. Go and sign up for my newsletter. You can go to chrisrawl.com, hit the subscribe button, put your email address in, bam, bam, bam. Also, you have a deep emotional connection to sports and would be willing to be interviewed on this very show. I would love to hear from you. Email me at chris at or DM me on Twitter at chrisrawl. Please, thank you. Enjoy your weekend. Peace. Peace.